This podcast contains mentions of homophobia and racism. Welcome, everybody. Uh, another episode of Queer Sounds, a podcast on queer folks' taste in music. My name is Hannah, pronouns they, them. And uh, coming to me from the other side of the world, it's Kai Madak. Welcome. Thank you so very much, Hannah, for having me. I am very excited and grateful to be a guest on your podcast. So yeah, introduce yourself a little bit. You're a musician from Indonesia, but I bet that's not all that you are as a person. That is not all that I am as a person. There are many... I guess, parts of my identity, inclusive of being queer, being very flaming gay, as I like to say, and also really liking to use music as an outlet to express that part of my identity in a way that can be representation and visibility in my country, which is very rare. Uh, just for the record, what are your pronouns? Oh, yes. She, her or they, them. I'm really flexible about them personally. All right. Cool. You said that you were very proud to, you know, claim your identity uh, in your country, being Indonesia. Um, how does that translate to, like, a broader international audience? Well, I am of a very unique subsect of Indonesians that are out. There are very few of us that are, and especially, I'm pretty sure I'm the only openly out musician, is what I've been told. Uh, and how that translates into an international aspect is I'm using this as a voice to showcase what LGBTQ plus existence is like in this country and what the perception is. Because I know so many people in the West think that the fight for LGBTQ plus rights, especially LGB rights for same sex relationships, is over. And it's not. So what what do you feel like is your biggest achievement in uh, in, in that aspect so far? That's that's a very good question, and it is kind of shameful to admit that the biggest achievement is basically solely the fact that I have stated that I'm both Indonesian and a member of the LGBTQ plus community. Doing so has been viewed by the world on a grand scale as something that was groundbreaking and pioneering, and I am so shocked by that because that's something in my mind that should just be considered normal and ordinary and just... I guess, a part of our everyday lives. But it is viewed with such, I guess, courage that showcases where we are in our own sense of the development of rights and, and what we view as respect for this community. How do you cope with that? Um, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who feel like their existence alone um, is a political statement. Yeah. Must be... Um, like. For me personally, you know, being non-binary in a world where, you know, that is hardly ever uh, considered a legal option, feels like my existence is also like a political statement in and of itself, but it's very different from yours, I bet. I mean, it's kind of on the same level. I Does, does uh, the Netherlands, can you have gender markers say that you're non-binary in the Netherlands? Technically, yes, um, but um, so far... There's only, I want to say, two or three uh, people who actually have an X rather than an, an M or a V. Um, but, you know, that comes with a whole lot of um, uh, legal processing. And basically you'll have, you'll, you'll need to have the, the national court saying it's okay. 
and then still the ex um, is more of a placeholder in the sense that legally it doesn't mean this person doesn't have a gender or this person is non-binary or this person falls out of you know some kind of uh, gender binary but um, it's it it's it legally means gender cannot be defined which you know sounds cool if I say it that way I guess but um, <laughs> Um, but it's it's more of a, a gender is yet to be determined type of thing. Okay, so it's more of like what a transitionary thing rather than this is their permanent identity as someone that is either genderqueer or non-binary or something else along the realms of beyond male or female. Exactly, yeah. I reckon uh, in Indonesia there there aren't even any options for that. No, not not one bit. Is that also something that you... Uh, occupy yourself with or are just too preoccupied with getting the LGB rights uh, movement going on um, in Indonesia and with that trying to not bite off more than you can chew? They are all intertwined with me. Um, In my own perspective of what our problems are, we can't address one without the other. We can't address transgender rights or I guess gender identity and sexual orientation go hand in hand, even though they're they're separate things, of course. And I think that is something that people would best be educated on is that they're they're two different things, but they kind of go hand in hand as in that's the same fight for how we identify and what makes us feel comfortable in who we are and who we want to become. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, like intersectionality is such an important part of the entire movement. Definitely. I, and I think that it's it's easy to to i guess try to segregate us but then i also have to recognize that a lot of the movements go hand in hand when we look at stonewall riots it was led by people that would probably now be considered transgender so do you locally even have the vocabulary to to express these issues to talk about these issues oh yes thankfully we do and thankfully what is i guess kind of forgotten in Indonesian history is the fact that we have kind of had a third gender or a non-binary aspect of our history and our culture and our mythology. There is something called waria, which is maybe some some of the people that identify as waria are say they're also transgender, but it's like um a a someone that is assigned male at birth that takes on the gender identity of what is more feminine in our culture today. Yeah, and Waria is a portmanteau of, I want to say Indonesian for woman and Indonesian for men, but like a, a, a combination of those two words. Yes. Yeah, but I'm not entirely sure if there is even one one particular language there over all of the islands. I mean, there's thousands of cultures there, right? So many, right? It's very hard to ever think of one unified idea or sense of culture because it is so varied. It's 17,000 different islands that we have in one nation. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to talk about Waria a little bit later, but um, um, now, that we're out, now that we're on it, I tried looking for, uh, I, I tried reading into the Waria cult, uh, aspect of your culture, but... It's so surprising how little sources I could find on this, um, especially Dutch sources, because we're talking about colonialism in that sense, where you know um, queer culture from is erased by Christian colonizers. Yes, and 
you know, the only sources I could find on it uh, were either, you know, people talking about uh, Indonesia as a colony or, or, you know, the Dutch Indies, as they were called at the time. And, and it was just a brief mentioned, like, also, this is something that exists. The other source mm. I could find were, like, um, early internet forums where um, people from Indonesia would talk about this as an aspect of their culture, like people who moved from Indonesia to the Netherlands after after decolonization. And um, I thought it was so telling for the situation how the only people I could find who actually talk about the Waria were, you know, locals. Yeah, I bet. And so it's interesting. We are seeing a continuous erasure of our history and pretending like this part of our past and culture doesn't exist now. It's quite scary when we think of that and the the social implications of how that means we're moving forward. We are erasing this part because it doesn't, I guess, fit what is considered Indonesia's current moral code of traditional family values. Yeah, before we... um stretch this introductionary talk a bit too far let's oh yes uh, let's actually get we're still in the introduction aren't we yeah we haven't we haven't played a single song yet um let's 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 go for that now there we go first track of the day in the cave oh yes it's empty in the valley of your heart the sun it rises slowly as you walk away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind The harvest left no food for you to eat You cannibal, you meat-eater, you see But I've seen the same, I know the shame in your defeat But I will hold on hope And I won't let you choke On the noose around your neck And I'll find strength in pain And I'll change my ways I'll know my name as it's cold again Cause I have other things to fill my time You take what is yours and I'll take mine Now let me at the truth which will refresh my broken mind So tie me to a post and block my ears I can see where those orphans through my tears And know my cold despite my faults and despite my growing fears But I Cave. Yes. Mumford and Sons. The Cave. Uh, released 2009 of their debut album, Say No More. To be honest, I was a little bit surprised when you came up with this one. Um, why did you pick it? I think as you've probably heard through my genre that I explore, it's very folksy sometimes. 
And I think a core part of that has to do with the Mumford and Sons and growing up and coming of age with that driving kick on the floor and the twang of a banjo and I guess how vivacious acoustic instruments can be in a way that makes people move and makes people, I guess, feel. Right. This is also, um, you know, like you said, the the kick, it's it's for folk music, it's very dense and energetic, but I feel like your music is a lot more mellow. Um, is Was that a deliberate choice to not actually go for the stomping stomping drum part of, of it all? So I, I like to have one track that is super stompy like that, and I think on my Time to Shine album, the title track, Time to Shine, is very folksy and in that classical folk pop sense. Um, and same with the album that's coming out this year. There's also one that is super like that to pay homage to, I guess, where I was very influenced. So was this track in particular like the track that made you go like, all right, I want to be a musician? This was the track that made me want to learn how to play banjo. Oh, cool. And then I got a banjo. So you started out with banjo and then moved to guitar or the other way around? Uh, Started with piano at a young age of four. And then had a little temper tantrum because I couldn't reach the pedals. And I thought that was a very important part. And I told my parents, unless you get me a piano in which my feet can reach the pedals, I'm not playing. Stubborn. (laughs) Yes. Um, And then I transitioned into guitar in my own accord. And I really loved it. And I loved the fact that I could teach myself how to play. And I kind of stuck with it and learned how to write songs with the guitar as my main, um, I guess, company to be my rhythm so you uh did you come from a very uh, musical household like were your parents musicians as well definitely not no <laughs> then how come you started playing at a young age was that just something that that you were interested in i think i was always interested in it especially school we were mandated to be in choirs um and i loved that and i didn't realize that i really liked it until i guess my music teacher started giving me some solos and I enjoyed that and then people started saying I was talented and I never realized it Um, and I guess that allowed me to think of music as an opportunity for me to explore who I am in a way that relates to me right and other people as well but there must have been a um, a turning point for yourself like because you know when people tell you you're talented I'm not entirely sure if you're inclined to believe that straight from the top. I'm not entirely sure how how you went about that. I think I thought that talent was all that was necessary. And then I realized it's actually a lot of work and determination. And what we do with the skill sets we might potentially have been more inclined to have to, I guess, nurture them and really strengthen them in the long term. A lot of people think that it's talent and luck. And I think those may play a part in it. But what's more important is the dedication and the perseverance to turn those seeds into something that is a strong tree that can stand on its own. Yeah, um, I think those um, talent and luck, two components, sure, but the work that comes with that creates opportunities for you know talent to blossom and luck to actually happen. If you don't put in the work, you're never creating situations for yourself in which you can be lucky. I think so too, and I especially see that as something so visible in music careers, because it's something that most lay people don't understand, because most lay people think you either 
are Ariana Grande or you're not a successful musician. You either have to be an A-list, like top 40s musician to be someone they think is successful, but they don't recognize that there are so many of us that make a good wage, middle, middle income, you know, middle class, just by our craft as a musician. And we may not be famous and we may not have Grammys, but we are still succeeding as musicians. So... What do you uh, draw inspiration from nowadays? Like, is it still uh, the Mumford and Sons type of stuff? Um, Less so. I, I think I've spoken to you about Casey Musgraves, and she has actually been such a strong influence in how I write today. And you might Musgraves be able to hear... is why I was surprised that you picked Mumford and Sons and not her. She came into my life a little later um, when I became an adult. And that shifted from... It's still like a very acoustic sound has a more mellow aspect that I kind of still take influence today in how I write, especially my lyrics. So what what is it about Casey Musgraves lyrics? Because I'm not a connoisseur. Okay. She is witty. There's double entendres and I think her command of the English language in, in, in lyric and songwriting is one that showcases a cheekiness and a sense of this song when you listen to it more than once, has many meanings. Right. But then I'm still just kind of stuck wondering why didn't you pick Casey Musgraves? Uh, I mean, I do realize that, you know, like you said, uh, Mumford & Sons were just around earlier. And with that, maybe it was more of a spark mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, started the fire in you called Casey Musgraves. It was that, is that like a way to, to, to yeah. describe it? But then with that, I still feel like a fire would be more persistent than just a spark. And therefore, it's, I'm just kind of running in circles within my own metaphor. But, you know, you, I mean, I feel like you get yeah, what I'm saying. We can play both. Um, they're both very important to me as artists. I would say that Mumford & Sons set the foundation where I really started to hone my craft as a musician and practice daily, especially with the banjo, because I didn't have teachers. I was in Indonesia. No one played the banjo. I had to smuggle it into the country. Wow. Yeah. Just because it's a it's. It's a non it's an atypical instrument. So I had to learn on my own and it taught me the dedication and the work it took to do so to build that skill and also made me recognize that it helped separate and differentiate me from other musicians in my school because this was around my high school years. Right. And with smuggling into the country, I'm just kind of go ahead and assume that um you know it's not like you're actually stopped of um, through customs, like this is where things no, no, got no. here. It was, it was, um, it was inspected quite a few times. You know, when I when I brought it over on an airplane, it was inspected quite a bit, um, and then they realized that it can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have a certain soundtrack um, to, you know, you moving from the U.S. to Indonesia? I would say that was probably Mumford and Sons. Yeah. And I think maybe that's also why I chose it. As much as they are a British band, it sounds so like American folk to me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and it made me feel, I guess, a sense of relation back to the U.S., even though I was moving to Indonesia and, you know, re-assimilating into Indonesian culture. But then you also, you as like being a, a I'm not entirely sure how to say this, um, a person who really owns up to her Indonesian heritage, um, your music sounds very 
American? Like, what was it a deliberate choice to not also incorporate some, you know, maybe some Indonesian traditional music or something like that? It's a good question. I don't know how I could do that at this moment in a way that would be respectful of, firstly, my Indonesian heritage, as well as, I guess, the message I want to write. I also have to recognize that because I have some sort of political affiliation just by being gay and openly gay with my music, that writing in Indonesian and making it more Indonesian will potentially open me up to even more hate and discrimination and might put a bigger target on my back that than that already exists. And that is something that I have to think about with how I portray myself. Right. I mean, I can t- understand why you, for example, write your uh, lyrics in English, because that uh, if you wouldn't, then it might go beyond the point of getting international acknowledgement for the fact that there are also queer people in Indonesia. But um, say musically, I feel like you could, I mean, I'm not telling you how to do things, but I'm just kind of intrigued by the idea of having some fun little nudges or winks to um, Indonesian culture in, in, in music. Definitely something that I could do. Do I want to, though, with my sound? Probably not. Yeah, no, of course, that's totally fair. There is one thing when it comes to Indon- uh, music by Indonesian people that uh, that I really wanted to talk to you about. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how problematic the term in and of itself is, but during the 50s, there was this, this, this genre emerged called Indo-rock, and it was basically the Indonesian version of Chuck Berry type of stuff. Yeah. Are you familiar with that? No. Well, I know that Indonesian music, like Indonesian modern music, sounds like music of the West, but maybe 20 years behind. So, um, like, there's very little that you'll hear on the radio of traditional sounds like the angklung or traditional instruments. Just like, I'm assuming, well, well, that's how music has developed worldwide, almost. Like, in Korea, K-pop is very electronic-based and doesn't incorporate a lot of, like, Korean traditional instruments um, from that aspect. And I think it's just... I think a lot of people have brought this up, like, your music doesn't sound Indonesian. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm not in the 18th century. Yeah, no, uh, Indo-rock in particular, uh, that was, uh, from memory, a movement that, you know, was started because of decolonialization, where a bunch of Indonesian people moved to the Netherlands, and, you know, especially in the, the Hague area of the Netherlands, those... Indonesian people who got in touch with rock music decided to go and do their own thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, creating a very, like you said, Western sound, um, very much, you know, rock and roll. Um, people like, uh, what are they called? The Thielman Brothers, uh, Electric Johnny, and the Skyrockets, that type of stuff. And it's... Oh, the classics. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, I was just wondering if you were familiar with with any of those bands i primarily don't listen to many indonesian artists unless they're more current day indonesian artists um yeah i have less of a resonance with that than even just based on genre of i i particularly lean towards more queer artists or i i like i want to support artists that support my sexual orientation and Sometimes I have to recognize that that means that I make choices on the brands I wear and 
what I can participate in and where I eat and how I conduct my life. Yeah. I mean, uh, I obviously don't know particularly what the political stances were of, say, the Thielman brothers, but we're talking about men in the 1950s, so I'm yeah. going to go ahead and assume they're patriarchal. So in that way, I can... It totally makes sense of it. Um, what is what is the music that you currently listen to a lot? Like, uh, for example, you mentioned you uh, enjoyed the 1975, um, but... Like, say, are there particular songs you go to when you're either happy or sad? Something that are in your A rotation? Oh, good question. I really love this British folk band named Bear's Den. They're more mellow. Do you know them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. I've, I've come across them on several occasions at a festival. I think they also played the same festival. I've, I've seen Mumford and Sons play live, and I think Bear's Den was there as well, just because they were happened to be touring together or something like that. Mm, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, so there's a half half of my, I guess, what I listen to is more folksy like that and uh, Casey Musgraves as a country example, as well as Judah and the Lion, who she collaborated with. Um, but then there's also an aspect that really likes that indie pop, synth pop, dream pop vibe of the 1975 and other artists in that realm, um, or even Chet Faker from Australia. Okay, cool. Which is a, a little more like, you know, backbeat, electronic. So I, I say that as a musician, it is my job to listen to music when I'm writing, especially if I'm writing with other people. That's one of the homework assignments I'm usually given is to listen to what is currently out so I can gauge how things sound now. But when I listen for my own personal enjoyment, it's usually folk. Yeah, no, I can also understand that you deliberately don't listen to any music when you're writing, so you won't. So you'll go. So you'll go into the process unbiased, and um, you know, really keep true to yourself. Yeah. Speaking of music, how about we get our second track going? Yes. She says I smell like safety and home. Please don't go I could be your morning sunrise All the time All the time, yeah This could be good This could be good I can't change Even if I tried Even if I wanted to together yeah, yeah, yeah. 
There we go. Uh, she Keeps Me Warm by Mary Lambert, released 2013. Um, from my recollection, it's a standalone single instead of an album. Yes. However, let's address the Mecklemore in the room. Of course. <laughs> Is that how you found out about this artist? Definitely. I think a lot of us found out, I think when she released this single in collaboration with Mecklemore for his Same Love single. She was a barista or a bartender. She hadn't really, I guess, solidified herself as a musician for a living. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but what what triggered you to look into this? Like most people, they'll listen to the Macklemore song, feel like, okay, this this is a fine song, whatever, and then forget to look into Mary Lambert. But this just, for some reason, resonated with you in a way that you were like, yes, I want to know more about this woman. I was discovering my sexual orientation and realizing that I was queer and didn't know how to navigate that so i i listened to macklemore's song cried and then googled who mary lambert was found she also had a single cried even more and then recognized that as something that really made me feel a little bit of a sense of security in my identity as a queer woman so you uh were already having a sense of, you know, there's, there is something potentially not straight about me, and then this track just kind of pushed you over the edge. This track made me confront what has, like, lingered under the surface throughout my entire teenage existence, but this made me, I guess, have to look at it a little closer. And what did you find? I'm really gay. Uh, yeah, it just made me recognize that those were feelings that I would want to relate to and those would are feelings that I would have the idea of a woman keeping me warm and falling in love with a beautiful smile and a lovely girl that's so wholesome thank you how about your your own queer experience from there like um the for example the uh, at this point hugely blown up a coming out video that you that you did on Twitter earlier this year. Um, what motivates you to do that? Oh, well, that was that was triggered by Indonesia's new proposed bill called the Family Resilience Bill that would basically consider all members of the LGBTQ plus community in Indonesia as sexual deviants and would mandate that we be sent to conversion therapy and then you stood up and it's like yeah no fuck this shit we need to stand up for ourselves and we need to be more visible definitely it made me so scared when i first read the bill because not only does it talk about that but it also defines a woman's place as the kitchen and basically also makes it illegal for 
um, people to be sperm donors or egg donors. It's it's such a backwards bill as with anything that says traditional values or family values. It's always something to strip away rights. And I realized, I, I panicked. I was like, oh my gosh, if this passes, which at the time it was supported by three major political parties in our country, I was like, if this passes, I'm screwed. I have proved to Indonesia that I'm LGBTQ+. I have a bunch of digital footprints that have me with rainbow flags at pride events, um, singing gay songs. Uh, yeah, I'll be sent to conversion therapy. Um, and after a few days of panic, I realized that there's nothing that I can do that would make it worse and might as well raise my voice. Yeah, exactly. I was just about to, about to say there, like you, like you, the way you put it, like your digital footprints, those are all deliberate actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I've gathered um, in Indonesia, there are, it's technically not illegal to be in a queer relationship right or is it is it now because of that specific bill it hasn't passed yet okay okay so as of yet it's still as horrible as it sounds legal to be queer it's not right. illegal to be in a same sex relationship right but they are using any loophole in the law they can find to criminalize queer people definitely yeah um so for example um like some places are worse than others, and uh, the way you uh, put it earlier, um, not in this particular podcast, but what you, the way you said it uh, was, they're using um, religion to justify bigotry and not the other way around. Like it's not, uh, it, it's it's not queer phobia um, rooted in religion. Which I think also says a lot about the fact that I feel the need to address this also says a lot about how, from my perspective, people try to uh, strongly connect um, the Muslim faith with queer phobia, um, whereas that is not inherently true at all. Um, I feel like I'm rambling. No, no, you're not. That's so, so the case. I think that people use religion as a way to justify hate or they would use anything else. Let's people use the excuse that oh um a same-sex couple can't have babies. So evolutionarily they shouldn't have children or they shouldn't be in a relationship. Um th- they people have these false ideas just as anything to quote unquote support their belief. I think we are all quite irrational and use and and form what we call evidence after we already have a feeling and belief. And in that regard, I, I say that it's 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 wrong to say that Islam is the problem or any religion or any one thing because there are LGBTQ plus Muslims. I mean, Indonesia is full of them. They're just in the closet. Just like how we used to say in the West that it was Christianity. But I know so many very open and accepting Christian churches and it's it's the mentality it's the individual person and the the fear-mongering that we then have created to control an entire population how was your own coming out experience in indonesia like were you faced with a lot of bigotry i've had multiple coming outs i mean i think we all come out every day 
right? Like, um, coming out to my parents was thankfully a lot easier than I would expect most other Indonesians have. They are quite accepting and quite respectful, and partners have gone on vacations with me, which is really sweet. From the aspect of how I came out to friends, I wasn't ready to. It just kind of came out without me feeling like I even knew how to express my identity. And that was scary because people knew something about me and I didn't even have the vocabulary to describe what I felt yet. I think the biggest part of, I guess, coming out, I guess the biggest hardship was is coming out publicly and how that has led to a lot of attention my way. And some of it's great. And a lot of it is also pretty atrocious and pretty horrendous. Um, thankfully, I decided to come out publicly when I felt ready and secure in my identity and also felt a stable sense of self-worth. But it's still sometimes quite hard to be reading comments and to receive messages that threaten to stone me. Did you feel like you came out on your own terms instead of coming out for the sake of being a visible Indonesian queer person? A little bit of both. I think that I recognize that I have a privilege to come out because I have a family that's accepting. That's not something many people can say. And what I've realized is it's okay to recognize our privilege because these were circumstances that were handed to me but I want to do something with that to better the world and better myself. It would feel vapid if I didn't. I feel like we're both talking in uh, a way to get a little bit meta. Like we, we both strongly sense that this is a very loaded subject. I feel like we're both <laughs> talking a lot slower now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just was just kind of distracted by how, important of a topic this is and you know that we that we both really feel like we need to address this also but also like stay close to ourselves and not go beyond our comfort zones like are how comfortable are you talking about this it's never a fully comfortable conversation to have you know and i also have to recognize that my words whether or not they should define or represent my community they do <laughs> Because there are not many, there are very few voices. So I want to make sure that I'm speaking in a place of sensitivity and compassion. So I got from other interviews um, that you were already um, dating someone before you came out to your parents. What was dating like at the time? What interviews were you listening to? <laughs> um, the the Coca Chat. Oh, Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I was, I was, I was with someone for three months and then realized I had to tell my parents before they found out. Um, I thought it would be best to come directly from me. And yeah. What was the question? Sorry. I'm caught off guard by that. I was like, wow, you've done your <laughs> research, Hannah. Um, uh, the question was, uh, what was dating like for you before you came out to your parents, basically? Oh, that partner was like my first kiss with a female. Um, my first everything with a woman. Yeah. I was fortunate in that regard that it led to a three-year relationship. And I... So I didn't really have to date. Right. But still, there was a point where you, you, you hadn't 
dated any women, um, you mm-hmm. two still found each other. Like, there, what, what happened there? We were traveling together. So she was a really close friend and we were traveling together. And now in retrospect, I see that we fell in love without realizing it. Especially what I think is, there are blurred lines with how female platonic relationships and friendships sometimes move into romantic gestures, but under the guise of being platonic, like a a lot of female friends will hold my hand and everything that even if they identify as heterosexual, it's, I guess, female friends, yeah, are, are allowed to be very physically affectionate compared to like two men in what is considered normalized yeah, in a sense that so, nothing is inherently romantic but you know yes. in, within uh two women being friends things are a lot more normalized and that just plays into a whole bunch of toxic masculinity on the other end of it because two girls can't possibly have sex or be in a relationship together it's not possible without a man how does that even work exactly so yeah i guess we over a few months we're holding hands and hugging a lot and saying I love you a lot. And I didn't recognize that I loved her until we ended up kissing. And that was a very surreal moment where I felt my mind slow down and time both speed up and stay still. And then I realized, yeah, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I like women. <laughs> Yeah, let's get some music going again. Is this the Trevor Hall song? It is the Trevor Hall song. Okay.
by Trevor Hall of his 2015 album Carla. So Kai, tell me, why did you choose this one? Why did you choose this track? I went to his concert in 2018 and I was pleasantly surprised by how he performs and how rich his vocals sound and how it almost seems like he doesn't care who's there um, in the audience. Have you heard of Trevor Hall before? No, I haven't actually. Oh, well, that's Trevor Hall. Um, He is someone I can listen to casually when I am just wanting to listen to some mellow stuff while I clean my house or something like that. And what I really liked about his concert was the experience of how it almost seemed like it was his prayer or meditation. The way he sang and the way he seemed to not really care about engaging with his audience in a way that felt like a performance and that was so novel to me and so unique in that aspect he didn't talk in between sets and explain what the songs were about which is very different than how I approach my stage presence and that was something that I felt was refreshing out of uh, all of the songs why to Zion in particular Good question. I think it's the banjo. It's the banjo in there. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. Instrumentally, it's the banjo. Um, lyrically, I just love the. I just love the way he integrated metaphors of nature into a song in a cohesive way, and then also tied in in what I think is a decently respectful manner, philosophies of his religion. So it the way um, it sounded to me, like especially like the later um, the later verses, the his flow to me just sounded like he was repeating a mantra without actually repeating a mantra, just because of the flow of it all. Exactly. Um, and felt very you know the the entire way he he sang about it just very soothing. Mm-hmm. How does that translate to to a live show? Because the the way you said it, um, the, the the way his voice sounded almost made me think like they did something in the live audio mixing or something. I was surprised that his vocals sound just as con- compressed right. live as they do on recordings. That was a big shocker to me. Just that that's naturally how his voice seems to sound when he sings, even live. It could have been a great audio engineer and a really great rig that they've created to allow a studio recording style sound. But it seems like it probably is also just naturally there in how he sings and how he pronounces words. It it, it does feel kind of like mantra, doesn't it? Uh, a re- re- repetitive phrase to just, I guess, embrace. So what was... Um what was the scenario in which you saw him live? Like, was it at a festival? Was it a club show? No, it was um, at a theater in L.A. That's perfect. Right. And this was the... I was 20, and I was about to go on my own tour. Right. And this was my first tour in the U.S., and I went to this concert alone. 
I didn't care about, you know, like, I guess we have a culture where we don't want to do things alone. We do it for the experience to share with others. But this was like, I don't care. I'm here to listen to him, not to take photos, not to do anything, just to experience. And it was quite freeing to be at a concert on my own. Everyone was like, of course, paired up. They either came with their friends or their partners. But no, I was just there. And I felt like I could focus solely on his songs and the performance. It also sounds like the type of thing that just gets so much more intense when you listen to it with your eyes shut. Mm-hmm. I mean, that you mentioned that wasn't a theater. Um, that's just perfect. But also when you're just listening to it right now, just kind of close your eyes, just kind of feel the world around me turn into some like i don't know like a place of worship like it could be in a church or 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 a theater like you mentioned um yeah any place just kind of becomes a very i want to say spiritual environment in in like you can just have a a concrete hall used as a concert venue and it automatically becomes gets a lot more personality like a lot more identity with with the music i don't know again i feel very rambly this morning no it, that makes sense to me it feels like there's once he opens his mouth and sings and you hear the tonality in his voice it immediately makes me feel like we are in a place to pay reverence and respect and almost bring us into a more profound place did this uh change your own way of performing No, I, I talk so much in my performances and I love it. Um, it was just a really fresh break from that because I know a lot of musicians are similar to me in that style. Right, yeah. I'm just uh, assuming that the talks you do during shows are not just, um, you know, speeches of queer liberation, but also just casual banter. It's a lot of, it's a lot of joking, a lot of banter, a lot of audience engagement. And just trying to be lighthearted because I feel like the best way to get my message across isn't to preach on a soapbox and tell people what to think, but to invite them to have a conversation. You, I, I do feel like sometimes you and I both can get somewhat soapboxy, um, even if it's just a single tweet being like, yo, this shit is, this shit is horrendous. How about we all stop being queerphobic assholes? Mm-hmm. How so, so? Is it a so? It's a deliberate choice for you to not do that or not let that be the persistent tone during your live shows. People want to be entertained, you know, and when they do, that helps open minds. I think the biggest issue we face is the fact that we, as humankind tend to forget to have compassion and empathy for each other because we view each other as different. And I think, especially in Indonesia, is when they when people hear that I am a queer woman, they only think about my, I, my sexual identity. They don't recognize all other aspects of me that make me human. The fact that I equally love rice as much as any other Indonesian, or, you know... Um, Just other things, other factors that define me and the complexities we have, they focus on that one part they don't like. And if I can make someone laugh and show them other characteristics, they're more likely to take on board the fact that I'm also queer. What's uh, 
playing live like for you um being someone from indonesia because there like you said uh there are queer people in indonesia they're just closeted and with that by extension there probably also aren't a lot of queer spaces in indonesia where you can safely play your shows yes so i make sure that the venues i play at well it basically self-filters out any homophobic venues because they'll research me and know that my stance is very, you know, openly gay, and they won't want me to play there. So I typically only play at venues that are, like, allies, and also want to make sure that the people who attend my shows and my events um, can feel like they are in a safe space and environment and can come back. It's it's hard to find, but there are, especially in Bali, there are a good amount of, like, we're accepting, you can, you can, you can bring your same-sex lover here, you know, um, but there aren't any real spaces specifically queer oriented, even though like I think we'd benefit from having that. Uh, attending shows Indonesia in Indonesia versus um, anywhere else. Are, do you experience any major differences there? If if we're listening to Indonesian music or like, are, is it Indonesian artists versus non-Indonesian artists? Well, more. Um, Shows at large. I mean, that obviously shows some um, ignorance from my end because obviously Indonesia is a commonly overlooked country when Western artists go on tour. Also, practically, touring from one city to another is extremely difficult in the archipelago. But that, again, would just be probably be me, uh, me being ignorant. I don't know. When people, like, when big artists tour in Indonesia, they either only go to the capital city, which is Jakarta, or they'll go to Jakarta and Bali, but at least Southeast Asia, everything's pretty close by, so they'll usually go Singapore, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, because that's all around two hours away from each other of a flight. Um, but there have been some big artists that I've seen here in Indonesia, and specifically both in Jakarta and Bali, from big EDM folk like um disclosure and swedish house mafia back when they were still together i i went to see their last tour but for other smaller artists it's it's a lot more difficult it's really we the international artists we have come here are the ones in the top 40s right indonesia uh being a lot more of a communal society rather than an individualistic one would you say that actually profits small local artists like help your neighbor out mm, we also have one of the biggest rates of piracy so i think that negates it there's an idea where we expect music kind of to be free just because almost all of our media is free in indonesia i don't think i've ever seen a legitimate dvd store here back when dvds were a thing it was all pirated just burned copies on you know yeah just, uh, so somewhere out there some lonely queer is selling bootleg kaimata tapes to other lonely queers to help them cope hopefully that's my dream that's when i know i have made it in the world <laughs> When I find a bootleg Kaimata CD back in my hand with my name written in Sharpie. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be... that. Would, what, what would your reaction be if someone just hands you a CD like that? Oh, I would, I would then make actual prints with that logo of whatever they hand drew on the CD and whatever they did with all the scratches, all the imperfections. 
I would I would then do a legitimate print of it and sell it. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of your own music, let's 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 get the last track of the day going. Um, yeah, it's exciting to have like a proper premiere on uh, on on this show. You must feel special. I do feel special. Wow. Like I am happy that you do. Like, come on, I've I've had people who play music on um, on the show, but never professionally. Like what yeah no you're you're actually the first professional artist i've gotten to show come to think of it wow to have that topped off with yeah an actual uh single premiere that that just kind of plays into um what we said earlier like i just kind of invite people and then sometimes i get lucky and and stuff like this happens yes okay a brand new song by kaimata where love goes
goes a brand new song by Kaimada. I'm just gonna assume it's going to be on the next album, but I don't dare to ask. Yeah, don't dare. <laughs> yeah, no. So um what is it that you as of yet can share about the song? This is a collaboration with Ollie Chang of Animal Feelings, who is an Australian artist that is based in New York City and also features Luke Jansen who is whistling on this track, who is a previous world whistling champion. Oh, that's cool. Yes. Uh, this is where I got very lucky with meeting some incredible people who want to work with me sometimes. And I am very proud of this track and how it kind of blends a lot of organic acoustic sounds along with a slight electronic beat to be, I guess, modern <laughs> or I guess contemporary and fitting with the times. Right. Uh, you release all your music yourself, right? There is no label in I have no label. And I don't think I would have a label in Indonesia as of now. Okay, but um, Indonesia and of itself, that how about um, international labels? Currently, I'm fully independent. I like that freedom to a certain extent doesn't mean that I would want that to stay the case for the rest of my career. Um, at the moment, I have recognized that I am kind of controversial. <laughs> uh, even internationally, for someone to sign me would, would kind of make a statement. But also beyond what companies think of it, is a deliberate choice for you to remain um, independent and DIY as of yet? Um, and just kind of whenever someone wants to sign you, see what would be good for you at that point in time. I've had uh, one or two offers, two offers come up in the past. Didn't seem like something that would be fruitful for me and what I could also give them. And that's how I want to approach it is how can it be mutually beneficial to the fullest extent possible. And I want to be very specific with making sure that I'm allowed to, not allowed, that we can collaborate to create contents that I am proud of and that they are also proud to represent as a label and also make sure that they recognize that sometimes the reason I make music is beyond musicality but message oh right yeah of course I feel like um you know me not necessarily coming from a folk point of view but more from a punk point of view um like I'm I'm not a punk myself, but that's just kind of the, the music scene that 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 I grew up with and that I emerged myself in during my developing music tastes, uh, during my developing days. That like that sense of DIY that you've got going on and, you know, s somewhat being political in your and, and, you know, well, not even somewhat just being political in your music. I feel like there is a lot of common ground there. How... Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure where I want to go with that. No, um, I'm gonna just run from there then, wherever you went in my mind. Is that okay? Yeah. No. Uh, share your thoughts. I mean, well, there's a beauty about being independent in which nowadays it is very easy to be compared to in the past, where you needed a record label in order to achieve any sort of success, and 
I might have a smaller pie, but I have the entire pie rather than a sliver of a big pie. Right, yeah. Um, and in the aspect of, I guess, how technology has moved forward and the platforms we have, I can be an independent artist and also still have a team that works with me to help support me as I've grown, which is nice. I've grown to the point where it's not just me doing everything, and I'm happy about that. Um, and also recognizing that there may come a point where it can't just be me as an independent artist if I grow it to a bigger scale. And then I might want to see what opportunities have I have f- upon that. Regarding the idea of that that tenacity to be DIY and political, it's funny because I also recognize that as much as my music and my message is political i don't want it to be a political message yeah that makes sense the idea that simply wanting to love who i love is considered political doesn't sit well for me the idea of simply being who we are as a political statement is so heavy to hear it feels heavy to recognize that my mere existence, as we said in the beginning, is a political statement. Yeah. Yeah, this this podcast, I commonly end on the overarching question, how does uh, your music reflect your queerness? But I think you're a very uh, outlying case there because you're a professional artist and those two are more intertwined than... With, maybe with any guests I've had on so far. Yeah. Um, but if I were to ask it, do you have any additions to that? Like, uh, does it go beyond just the music you play? I mean, regardless of if I wanted my queerness to be a staple in, in the forefront of my music, I'm always going to sing about love and about the experience of experiences I've had in life. I have kind of over time made it a little more intentional because I am privileged and I want to use that privilege for a benefit. I can be straight passing by most people. Um, I have the ability to articulate myself in English and speak to people who are more likely to accept me than the majority of Indonesians. I am blessed with opportunities to play internationally and I want to make sure that I use that in a way that benefits my community and that's being vocal because I never had representation growing up in Indonesia there was no role model I could see in a very heteronormative world where anything but getting married at the age of 23 and saving yourself for marriage was considered shameful So I wanted to make sure that people in their youth in the same position I was in could maybe at least see some flaming gay girls sing about kissing girls, you know, and waving rainbow flags in the air all the time. Um, I feel like if we want to get, even if it doesn't become a political statement anymore, would don't think we would stop waving rainbow flags, would we? No, because it's part of our history. A lot of people, I think a lot of people question why the LGBTQ plus have pride and say the word, we're proud to love, you know? It's like, 
a lot of people say, why are you proud of that? It should just be normal. And I say, yes, it should. The fact is, it isn't. The fact is, even in pockets of places where it is now, 10 years ago, it wasn't the case. There are so many of us that have been killed, been kicked out of our families, been ostracized, or even committed suicide because of a sense of discomfort for who we are, a sense of shame, a sense of guilt for loving. And that is something that I want to make sure that we remember as we move forward. I think Pride and Pride Month isn't a celebration of the things we experience now in our privilege. It's a celebration of the people that made it happen, the suffering they went through to bring us to this place where America, I can be married to a woman, in Canada, in so many places in the world now. And we need more places that legalize same-sex marriage and allow people to embrace all parts of their identity from their gender identity to sexual orientation. And Pride is a time to remember where we came from and where we still need to go. I just realized something very late. Um, this episode being released in June, isn't that like Pride Month? Yes. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that sooner? Uh, oh, this is just too perfect. Um, yes. <laughs> How did you... Okay. I mean, we, you know, we are all on a weird schedule now with COVID, so dates really don't matter. It's not like we're going to any actual pride marches. I like how you just realized that is adorable. I can be very oblivious at points. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think that about wraps it up for us for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, how about you? I'm good as well. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Okay, with that, this has been Queer Sounds. Um, uh, yeah, you can reach out to me on... Um, Queersounds.com. You've got find our contact form there. Um, you can also reach out to this podcast through Twitter, through Tumblr, if you so desire. Um, both of them at QueerSoundsPod. Um, uh, oh, yeah, I, I should not forget to plug my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash QueerSounds. Um, you can get some fun little perks there, like pack stickers or even um, decide what music's going to be played next um so yeah patreon.com slash queer sounds and with that i want to thank you all again for listening and i want to thank kaimata for coming onto the show it is my utmost pleasure thank you for having me hannah thank you and goodbye